Welcome to the Beyond Barriers podcast. When women lead, share performance and profits go up 50%. Results are more powerful when everyone is empowered. This is the insight that brought the four founders of Beyond Barriers together. We came from a diverse set of leadership backgrounds with a common goal to close the gender gap at work and expand economic opportunities for everyone. Tune in each week as one of us interviews inspiring guests who share stories and cutting edge strategies that will help you learn what helped them go further faster. So as I was reflecting on what I wanted to do next, I had a number of very instructive meetings. I remember, you know, people give me gave me different types of advice. One, mm-hmm. one of them said, have you ever written your own obituary? Um, which was an exercise he went through um, mm-hmm. uh, when he had a career break. Um, and I didn't take that literally too hard. That was a little bit too morbid for me. But <laughs> yeah. And people take that differently. But it mm-hmm. was a good push to really start thinking about, well, what do you want to achieve in this next chapter? What do you want to achieve in this next chapter? How about unlocking the prioritization in your personal and professional life? Hi, I'm Monica Marquez, your host for today's episode. Join us as Hanukkah Smith shares the key to unlocking the ability to prioritize, delegate, and achieve maximum effectiveness. Stay tuned to discover the pivotal moments that propelled her to her current role and the valuable insights she gained along the way. Visit GoBeyondBears.com where you'll find show notes and links to all the resources in this episode, including the best way to get in touch with our special guest. Welcome, Hanukkah. Thank you so much for joining us on the Beyond Barriers podcast. We are thrilled to have you here today. I want to dive in to talking just a little bit about who you are, your journey in your career so far, and just kind of maybe some of the, um, one of the learning points as you got to your career now that you are in the role that you're in, just sharing with us what it's been like to get to where you are now. Well, Monica, it's such a pleasure to be here and thank you for inviting me into this conversation and uh, giving me the opportunity to share some of my learnings. Um, and they, they span now um, three and a half decades, probably almost a little bit more. Um, and sort of going back, I, I actually came to the United Kingdom where I'm now based uh, from the Netherlands where I had grown up and did my undergraduate uh, career. Uh, I spent about two and a half years in Asia between my undergrad and, and, and graduate degree, uh, mostly in Hong Kong and China in the late 80s, which was absolutely fascinating and was a hugely learning and valuable experience. But I decided to come to London Business School because I, I wanted to to be in work in services, in particular financial services. I thought London was very much, you know, clearly in addition to New York um, and Tokyo at the time, a big center and was also a little bit closer to my original home. So I came to London Business School, uh, graduated from LBS in 1992 and effectively embarked on a career in investment management, dominated by a career in private markets, but more recently uh, in a more broader role as first the CEO of Newton, an equities multi-asset manager, and now a CEO of BNY Mellon Investment Management, where we oversee a number of firms uh, across a key range of asset classes. Now, what I think has been so interesting as I look back on on, on my career, uh, and, and it won't surprise you, I do get asked this question uh, from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
is first of all, uh, the role models uh, that I've benefited from and actually the support I got from, in particular, my parents. That's, you Mm -hmm. know, foundations I I, I got through them. For both of my parents, uh, education was really the foundation to, to a career and success. And they didn't really differentiate between success as they saw it for their two daughters and their son. So my sister and my brother and I, mm-hmm. financial independence was key. My parents came from, you know, had been raised by obviously my grandparents who had survived two world wars and the Great Depression in the 1930s mm. and had always felt that it was actually education that got their lives back on track and enabled them to switch careers. So that was a message that was very much passed on through the generations and with me. So leaving London Business School, I had that support uh, and, and that confidence coming sort of from that from that particular type of um, background. Mm-hmm. So I went into investment management as a career that actually satisfied my curiosity. Mm. Part of me had, had, at an earlier point in my life, had thought of studying history or classics. Um, I ended up landing more in economics and business studies because that seemed a little bit more practical, uh, certainly Mm. for my generation growing up in the Netherlands. Um, But investment management really allowed me to be, or at least for me, be in a world where you could think globally about some very difficult topics, be it markets, be it a geopolitical background, et cetera, Mm -hmm. uh, and make investment decisions. And that's effectively uh, where I I ended up staying. That's phenomenal. And you've had such a successful career path, and it seems like you had clarity, um, you know, early on that this is what you wanted to pursue. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, you did go into a space, an industry that is probably more male dominated and talking, you know, a little bit about building that, you know, personal brand in terms of you being very focused on what it is that you were wanting. Um, You had all the support in the world, but can you talk a little bit about how you navigated, um, you know, a business or a space, an industry that w- wasn't very female, you know, uh, friendly in terms of just what we've seen over the course of history? Yeah, so first of all, when I joined that particular sector, I actually have to say gender wasn't as much of my, it wasn't as big of a part of a focus as 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 it actually is today. I was much mm-hmm. more focused on the opportunity as I saw it, what I could learn in that space. And clearly I was also given confidence um by uh conver- you know through conversations with my professors, through mm-hmm. mentors I'd had. Now I would also say the uh the, the two earlier organizations that uh, that I joined uh, after London Business School, in both cases, I was actually recruited by a female. So mm. when I joined Pantheon, uh, the managing director re- that recruited me there was one of the three managing directors. It was a small organization, but she was a female. And I shared an office where- with her mm-hmm. uh, in the early part of my career. And to me, 
it, yeah, it was actually pretty cool to actually see someone who <laughs> yeah. was also actually an, uh, an engineer by background uh, who had been successful in that particular environment. And then when I moved across to, in 97, what was then called Brinson Partners and became mm-hmm. later on part of UBS, um, where I joined the private equity team there, I was also recruited by a female. Um, so I think, I don't know if it was really conscious on my part, but I did select two organizations in the early part of my career where there were women that were very senior and who happened to be both my recruiting managers as well as my mentors and, and sponsors during mm-hmm. that part of, uh, of the journey. I was also helped by male mentors uh, as part of that too. But when you look back on that, that was probably um, pretty pretty telling in, in terms of my own self-selection process because I did see successful females early on in my career. Mm-hmm. And that's really powerful. And you and you mentioned, you know, the importance of kind of earning that support of the mentors and sponsors and and really kind of seeking that out. And as you gradually kind of moved up in your career, how did you were you intentional about the relationships you were building? And, you know, share a little bit about, you know, how you actually leveraged mentors and sponsors and a little sharing a little bit maybe between the two if you know what we try to talk to you know the individuals who go through our program is mentors are amazing in terms of really kind of helping you you know level up and being able to really kind of you know almost air your dirty laundry of like this is what i'm having trouble with and whatnot sponsors on the other hand are someone who have a place of influence, you know, have have some power to actually make opportunities happen. So being, you know, somewhat strategic in the relationship with them, how have you, did that become something natural to you? Was it something that you discovered or how have you really leveraged those relationships in order to help you navigate um, into, you know, your senior roles? Yeah, so it worked a little bit slightly differently for me, perhaps partly because of the types of organizations that I was part of and the industry mm-hmm. that I was in, which in the 90s was relatively small. Mm. So Pantheon, when I joined it, I think had less than 20 uh, uh, employees, you know, and, and mm-hmm. it grew a bit larger. It had grown a lot larger by the time I left. And I think when I joined the Brinson Partners private equity team, there was a team of 40 and we spun out the business in 2001 and maybe had 50 people then and about 150 when I left in 2014. Mm-hmm. So these were not organizations that really formal mentoring programs with clearly senior right. people mm-hmm. you could confide in. I also had an opportunity to become senior and relatively experienced uh, in, in those organizations. However, I was part of an industry that, that, uh, where I had access to uh, very special people, CEOs that we worked with in companies we backed or managing partners in funds that we backed as a private equity fund funds manager, we had access to the best and the brightest. And I found myself through almost more external networks really benefiting from talking to individuals who were running relatively large organizations and listening to their leadership journeys or their leadership principles. And then that caused me to reflect 
uh, upon my own career or how I did things and how, you know, what I needed to do to get onto the next track. And I did seek Mm. out some people externally, occasionally for, you know, advice and direction. I wouldn't Mm. necessarily call it mentorship or mentorship, but definitely a group of sort of trusted advisors. Uh, mm. which who are hugely influential uh, and helpful to me along the way. No. I've also been very committed to sort of paying mm. it forward because I was in this very yes. small, I was in this what was really a cottage industry that grew. And as I, as my responsibilities um, were increasing, so I was hired at, was at, at, at the Brinson Private Equity Group to create their European portfolio. I then assumed responsibilities for uh, starting and investigating the opportunities in Asia. And then I assumed a more global role in 2006 and became the chief investment officer uh, of the organization. And as I then looked across mm. at my peers, It then struck me that I did not see that many people like me, women Mm -hmm. who were uh, in a leading role in another private equity type organization. I had made along the way uh, a number of of strong friendships with women. Mm -hmm. You know, they were easy to spot at industry conferences because there weren't that many of them. And um, ultimately, all of us decided to join hands in 2014 um, and rolling into 15 when I had a career break to uh, launch something called Level 20 to support women's growth in the private equity sector Mm. through like a cross-private equity mentoring program. And I had the real joy and privilege to be its first chair. But that was really about thinking through, well, how did we all get here? There were 12 right. founders. What mm-hmm. do we need to do? The companies in which women want to flourish are relatively small. They're not the size, even if some of the larger buyout firms have become a lot larger. Mm-hmm. They were not that big in 2010, 2012, 14 as they are today. And they're certainly not as large in terms of employee numbers as, say, the organization that I'm part of today, which is over Mm -hmm. 50,000 employees and 3,000 in my investment organization. So it's very much um, focusing on cross-company mentoring scheme, um, Mm -hmm. to some extent borrowing from the 30% club, which I now chair. Uh, so everything has yes. come full circle. That's phenomenal. And and I mean, I think what I see here is a through line of, you know, really, like you were saying, identifying the individuals, because like you said, as you started getting more senior, you can kind of see the few who are like you. But I think the important thing that you mentioned also, and we try to l- let individuals know is that if you constantly are seeking individuals who look like you, you're missing out on opportunities from learning, you know, from other people who have been successful in those roles. And you've been extremely successful, you know, in this, in your industry and in your career. Can we talk a little bit about, were there ever moments, you know, because you've had an amazing, you know, um, career in the sense that, you know, you were started off as an investment manager, then you became kind of part of the executive committee, you became CEO of Newton Investment Management. 
and now senior executive, uh, you know, and global head of investment management of, um, you know, BNY Mellon's executive committee. So those are all roles, though, that as you get into those roles, are there ever moments of, you know, there is no kind of like, here's this guidebook and this is what you do. Like, this is what you do next. Are there moments of, of how do you actually ramp up and level up into these roles? What is, you know, what does Hanukkah do in order to make sure that she is ready for the role? Are there moments of self-doubt? Are there moments of, can I do this? Um, what, what has been kind of your go-to to help you just excel the way that you have? So, so perhaps a couple of things, and I, I do, I do, I do believe these things play out differently in the earlier part of your career than in the mm-hmm. later part of your career. I, I'm very much a believer that in the early part of your career, mastery of skills is really, really critical. I know mm-hmm. a good professional friend of mine calls this "nail the basics." You got to nail the basics. So <laughs> yes. when you start as an analyst, as I did. Mm-hmm. In those days, you, you're better good at Lotus One, Two, Three, or spreadsheets and models and and and, and financial analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's about, and then in the second part, it's about applying that analysis and exercising judgments and actually building a track record. And that actually takes a long time. That's a. I, I remember explaining this to a person who, who you know, ten, fifteen years later, who joined. Uh, as an associate, and I said, you may understand this conceptually, but actually, you know, after a year, you 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 may feel that you've mastered it, but actually, getting good at it and actually building that track record does at least a decade, right, mm-hmm. before you get the mm-hmm. consistency. So that that's one piece. And the second part is, um, and this may be natural for individuals that do come up through investment management, whether it's private markets, pub, you know, public equities or fixed income. Mm-hmm. Um, you're constantly learning from your mistakes because your job is to deliver performance mm-hmm. to your clients. And so you have to look at a lot of data. You have to make an informed judgment. You have to decide what you have in your portfolio, what you exit from your portfolio and all of that together. Uh, leads to investment performance, um, hopefully that your clients are expecting of you, but from time to time, it doesn't go to target. And then it's about, well, what, how do you learn from those mistakes? So there's a constant in, in, in your job, there's a constant sort of feedback loop, right? And mm. I think I've learned to apply that to myself as well. What is going well? What are the things I'm good at? What are the things I'm not so good at? Because as much as we all try to correct our weaknesses, we can all be much more effective by dialing up our strengths. Mm. And this is how I work with teams as well. Of course, we should, everybody should focus on if there's, if there's a gap, Perhaps it's a skill gap or a knowledge gap or, or there's something around behaviors. You, you wish someone um, behaved differently. Often it's more important to try and put some of that in a bit of a box and try to contain some of these things mm-hmm. uh, and actually really focus on how you leverage the strengths and put people in roles mm-hmm. that help you to leverage your strengths. So once all that means to say that once once you get once you're past the mastery of skills, mm-hmm. then you get into a phase um, 
that people in my position are in, that, that it becomes much more important that you can explain how you deliver the results that you have. So we all mm-hmm. show up with a CV with lots of achievements on it, right? Have this track record, I've run so many teams or this or that and the next thing. Right. It's, actually, it's not so much the what, it is the how that then actually becomes important. And at pivotal pivotal moments, in particular in 1415, having been with one organization for 17 years, I, I took a career break. And one of the things I really spent time doing was thinking about some of those questions. How did I actually delivered a 17-year track record to my clients at what had become Adam Street. What was it specifically about me mm-hmm. that I delivered? And what of those um, skills uh, and some extent values and, 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 and what is it about me that I could take into other roles? What were the aspects that were transferable? Mm-hmm. And I think it's thinking through the transferability of the aspects uh, of your skills that's really critical when you get to a fork in the road, mm. right? Because not ever, it's not always about doing the same, but in a different organization, it's about how you build on what you've, what you've learned. So in my case, it was about understanding how you bring people together from a lot of different backgrounds to come to investment decisions, to come to sometimes difficult business decisions. Mm-hmm. It was a sense of um, real accountability for investment performance, but also for uh, business performance. It was a strong focus on execution. And you think about it and you think, well, actually, I can take those skills. They're, they're not exclusive to private markets. Mm-hmm. They're clearly in sort of a financial services context, but those are skills that you can take into other asset management type organizations, which is what I did. What if you knew exactly where to focus to go further, faster? Imagine having clarity on your strengths and barriers and the ability to take action and gain unstoppable momentum to deliver results and advance. Take the Beyond Barriers Momentum Metric Quiz to get a personalized report on the five C's, core categories used to measure and accelerate success. Visit gobeyondbarriers.com slash quiz to get your report today. That's phenomenal. And what you shared is so insightful on, you know, you touched on a couple of things of like really leveraging the feedback loop and, you know, learning from mistakes. And I think that's something that we find um, people can have a really hard time doing in terms of not taking feedback personally or not getting discouraged when something goes wrong. Um, and you seem like you've mastered the skill of really flipping that and looking at the feedback as a gift and learning from it and the failures or mistakes also as a gift when you don't hit those marks. Can you talk a little bit about how you kind of, um, you know, was that something natural to you in terms of mindset of just flipping it and looking at at it through rose colored glasses instead of the, the jaded glasses where a lot of people take feedback and, um, you know, and it, and it hinders them or makes them shrink a little bit. I think that's what has made you extremely successful in that regard. But I also want to touch on, which I think some of that bravery comes out too, where you you mentioned a career break. And, and I know for a lot of people, um, when I used to work at you know Goldman Sachs, I, I created and rolled out the returnship program to help women reenter the workforce because so many found it 
difficult after a career break coming back, but you've had an extremely successful um, career and you speak proudly of this career break opposed to it being something that was, you know, a negative mark on your, on your resume. Can you talk a little bit about that? Okay, so, so I'm going back to feedback as a gift, and I love that you said that because that's actually uh, one of my favorite quotes, uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think something that identifies me. I remember years ago, uh, someone said to me, you know, you have to remember feedback is a gift, there, and I think it's both, It's not just about the giving, it's actually the receiving of it. Uh, my direct reports know that one of the things I always ask for as part of the appraisal process is also feedback about me. I can only... I'm very clear that even if I'm in this role, um, I don't know everything. That's why I have I have a team mm-hmm. of fabulous people around me, and they're all there to contribute a particular skill or area of expertise. Uh, and it's a group that I rely upon to give me feedback. For one, um, mm-hmm. it, when you sort of ask me where does that come from, is it a mindset? I I can't, you know, this is a challenge when you reflect upon sort of a 35-year sort yeah. of professional career. I don't know. I suspect part of it is who I am, but I suspect a big part of it is also um, having had a career in investment management where we used to do case studies on investments that didn't go according to plan because certainly mm. in private markets, you own your investments Um uh, for, for potentially a lot longer than in the public market space. And it, and and we used to, in the organizations I was part of, always spent during offsites, spend time going over cases that hadn't worked out. And I've, mm-hmm. and what did we learn from that? And what did we, and sometimes it was just, you know, it was just a bad investment, but sometimes it was around process or things we overlooked. And I, I applied those principles also to to leadership. I think I have a very collaborative style when it comes to decision making. I seek a lot of input. It's back to that team. Every I, I expect people to contribute to decision making, mm-hmm. and I prefer um, I prefer it that a group comes to clarity in a team meeting and that we jointly own that decision. Mm-hmm. But I also understand that there will be times when perhaps the group is divided and it mm. means that I, as the leader of the group, have to make a decision, right? And I'm comfortable making that decision. But you know what? I don't always get it right. And to me, it's critical that when I realize that, I go back to the group and I said, and I, and I say to them, you know, when I decided we were going left, when some of you wanted to go left and some of you wanted to go right, well, it was the mm-hmm. wrong decision. We should have actually gone straight or whatever it is. <laughs> right. I think that it's healthy and it encourages a, um, a, a sort of a healthy uh, organization. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of career break, look, it was I was very fortunate. Um, to be in a position to take a break. I had a fabulous uh, time at Brinson and what became Adam Street Partners, having all these opportunities to actually create uh, a team from scratch in Europe, in Asia, and also taking on the global role. Uh, the business grew a lot and has actually continued to grow um, uh, since I left. And, and, and uh, it's, it's, today's team has successfully taken it forward. 
But I had come to a point where I realized that I took a lot of energy. I got a lot of energy from the, the building and the growing. Um, and I was traveling. I was traveling a lot at that point. Um, and I wasn't getting, you know, we we're talking about curiosity. Mm-hmm. Some of the, I wasn't learning somehow as much anymore. Mm. So for me, the, but there wasn't as much. The, the trade-offs weren't as good in terms of, I would say, job satisfaction and being away from family and where you are. And, and you know, require, you know, you have to work pretty hard in these roles. It's very mm-hmm. full on. And for a whole bunch of reasons, I, I decided that the time had come after 17 years to, mm. um, you know, to, to take time off. And it was hard um, because we had spun we had spun it out from a large financial services organization. We were then quite a little firm. I remember in January '01. Remember the internet yeah. bubble had burst. Yes, uh-huh. valuations were not good. You know, I I returns the portfolio had a lot of venture exposure. The returns weren't didn't look particularly great. We of course were convinced it was going to get better, and you know, there's cycles and. And things turned and it became very successful. But it was, you know, it was a time when, you know, I'd also did the signing the office lease and buying the coffee machine and all of those things. Right. Mm-hmm. It was a tremendous period of um, of learning, growth, satisfaction. But I had felt that I, on a personal level, I started to plateau. So it was a good time mm-hmm. to take a break. But sitting at home in January 15, you know, I thought I I was so busy, you know, wanting to ensure a good transition for clients and colleagues that I didn't really have a plan for what was next, which I Mm -hmm. then spent time working on in 15, Mm -hmm. which I sort of referenced earlier on in the conversation. Mm. That's so powerful. And I think the through line I'm hearing is that you – you actually take a lot of time for self-reflection in order to help gain, you know, clarity for yourself. And, you know, can you talk a little bit about what are, you know, other ways? Because it, it is kind of a very courageous move to take that break um, and really kind of think about what's next for you and gaining that clarity. Can you talk about some of the maybe questions or techniques or or things that you really thought about when you were wanting to identify what is the next North Star? Where, you know, how is your North Star pivoting in terms of career path and tapping into, like you said earlier, the strengths and the purpose that you were wanting to seek out and eventually coming back? And how did you share that narrative when you were ready to kind of like, okay, I took that break and I'm ready to come back. So, so I would say the other element we haven't touched on is I've had, I haven't had that many forks in the road. There have only been three or four pivotal moments and it's Mm -hmm. always been balancing opportunity and risk and where perhaps others saw risk. So think about Mm. starting a portfolio from scratch in Europe. That's not for everyone. I saw the opportunity where maybe others saw risk and that's sort of the same for the career break. Mm. As I referenced earlier, I was very fortunate that I'd built some very strong relationships with some very special and smart people who were ahead of me in their careers. Um, And I did take up uh, their uh, their offer of support during 2015. So as I was reflecting on 
what I wanted to do next. I had a number of very instructive meetings. I remember, you know, people give me gave me different types of advice. One, mm-hmm. one of them said, have you ever written your own obituary, um, which was an exercise he went through um, mm-hmm. uh, when he had a career break. Um, and I didn't take that literally too hard. That was a little bit too morbid for me. But <laughs> yeah. And people take that differently. But it mm-hmm. was a good push to really start thinking about well, what do you want to achieve in this next chapter? And there are other things, you know, there are things you want to achieve in terms of your career, but there are also other things you want to achieve in terms of maybe work-life balance or where you want to live and mm-hmm. um, what what other aspects are important to you. So out of that to me, so, so that thinking uh, to me was very clarifying because it helped me understand that philanthropy was very important, giving back was very important. Mm. Um, being more based in London was going to be very important. And so when I ended up becoming CEO of Newton, for example, at the time, well, one aspect of my role was to actually make it somewhat more global, it was it was very much a London-based business, which was a good fit for that time in my life. But I also have become chair of a venture philanthropy organization. I was the founder chair of Level 20, right? That's helping um, mm-hmm. young young women uh, on their path to success in, in PE. I'm chair of Impetus, which works with children from less privileged backgrounds to, you know, help them... Uh, be successful in, mm. in school and, and in life. So it was really instructive to me to to go through that. But it takes time. Mm. Um, and I have, you know, of course I've had my moments. I didn't answer your question earlier. But of course I've had my moments of self-doubt um, that many people go through. <clears throat> I had the opportunity to actually speak at my daughter's school a week ago so you don't put yourself back into, you know, how 17-year-olds see you. <laughs> look, you're going to look at me and look at this amazing CV, and you just expressed that very generously earlier on, Monica, as well. Thank mm-hmm. you for that. But I can assure you it didn't all go up in one line, right? I've mm-hmm. had things that haven't worked out, but it's what you do with your failures or your disappointments that actually makes you come back stronger and and be aware that it's never a straight line for anybody or very, mm. very rarely. I love that. And I love how you said, you know, that success of that career is not linear. Um, but what I've I've learned just listening to you is the intentionality of, you know, making the decisions of, you know, where you wanted to take your career um, and getting true fulfillment out of your success. Right. Because there have been some people who were just so dead set on this is, you know, I need this is how I'm going to be successful, but not really taking those moments to self-reflect. And I think that's a powerful message. And it's a, you know, it's a, an amazing example of your career where it is kind of a core value of constantly reflecting of, you know, what, um, how can I learn from this and, and whatnot. So I, I could go on talking and talking to you, but I know that we're in, you know, in a, have a short amount of time with you. So I'm going to jump to the lightning round questions. And, you know, I think these are also very telling and we'll share some additional insight of, you know, who who Hanukkah is. Um, <clears throat> can you share with us what book has greatly influenced you? 
Well, I'm going to disappoint you and make it more complicated. I, I don't really have one book. I love mm-hmm. reading. I think a lot of people in my role love reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really like to read about um, historical events or mm-hmm. historical fiction that reflect on historical refriend, uh, events uh, that actually may be helpful in understanding what we're going through now. So mm-hmm. actually this summer... I read, um, or a summer ago, I read The Empire of Pain. Uh, mm. And um, uh, this summer, I read Demon Copperhead, uh, which is actually really targeting, uh, in a fictional way, the impact of the opioid epidemic in uh, Virginia. Currently, by my bedside, I have two books. I always have two or three books on the go. I love it. Yeah always a little bit different and uh-huh. one of them will be like a very easy reading book my, my two interesting ones are one is called snow widows and the other one is called travelers in the third Reich. and mm-hmm. snow widows is uh, effectively reflects uh, Scott's expedition to the Antarctic through uh, the lens of the mothers and the wives that were left behind and the letters and that's that's just fascinating. Yes. Uh, and Travelers in the Third Reich um, is a book that came out, I want to say, four or five years ago. And it really, it, 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 it highlights uh, and shares anecdotes of uh, accounts at the time of travelers from America, from England to Germany in the mm. 1930s. And what those people saw but they perhaps chose to ignore um, the Germany they saw at the time uh, and the degree to which you know the Second World War that mm-hmm. followed was a surprise and I think quite frankly in uh, against our current geopolitical backdrop in the world we live in today I'm finding that actually very very interesting. Yeah, that is fascinating. And and like you said, you're, you know, I have also a um a curiosity for history and and how sometimes the whole adage of history repeats itself. Sometimes you're like, okay, yes, like you can see some of these markers. It's yeah, fascinating. Or it rhymes. Yeah. Yes. That's right. What is your favorite inspiring quote or saying? Well, I think we've had it. Feedback is a gift. Oh, I love it. Yes. Bring that full circle. What is one word or moniker? that you would use to describe yourself or your career to date? So someone's described me once as a direct truth teller, and I would mm-hmm. say I'm honest and transparent, and, and those, are, uh, th- those are values that I really live by. Oh, I love that. The truth teller, those are so hard to find. Um, and sometimes people don't look for them because they don't want to hear the truth. But um, I think it's so powerful to always have a truth teller in your circle. That's phenomenal. What is one change, a habit, behavior, or action that you implemented that actually made your life better? Being ruthless about calendar management. So mm. I really look at my calendar every day or every, you know, and then every week and look at a month and say, what are the meetings that I'm going to do, delegate, diminish, delay, or delete? Mm. That and I have a number of rules, but it's really, you know, saying no can be very freeing too, as much yes. as you say yes as well. Absolutely. It's almost, it's almost kind of like, um, People don't really understand that sometimes the more ruthless you are with your calendar, the more strict and the more boundaries, actually, the more freedom you have, right? Because you can get more done. 
Absolutely. Oh, I love that. And then final question. Um, you know, you've had um, amazing leadership roles. You've probably been on many stages. Um, if you had to pick a song uh, that was playing every time you stepped out onto stage, what would that song be? So I always think back to the first movie uh, that made a real impact on me. I think it was about eight or nine, and it was Saturday Night Fever. Which <laughs> I love it, yes. It's <laughs> so fascinating now that I work for Bank of New York because it was set in New York, and I still remember John Travolta coming out, BGs and staying alive. It's got to be staying alive. <laughs> and strutting through that set on that sidewalk. Yes, fantastic. Oh, my goodness, Hanukkah. It's been an amazing conversation with you. Um, I just, you know, every single time we wrap up um, amazing conversations. We have people who want to connect or reach out. Um, and I know that you're also very much engaged, um, you know, like you said, from a philanthropy perspective with the 30% club and whatnot. Can you share just a little bit of what's the best way for people to reach out and connect with you or continue to follow um, and just, you know, hear more of you and your story? Yes, well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity, Monica. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, so people can find me on LinkedIn. That's pretty easy. And mm -hmm. also really look at the good work that the 30% Club does. It's www.30percentclub.org. Fantastic. Well, Hanukkah, thank you so much for your time. I know that you ruthlessly watch your calendar. So keeping true to our word, we are, you know, <laughs> closing, um, closing out this conversation. But thank you again for your time. We know uh, how, you know, important it is um, to have people hear stories like yours and, under and see themselves in someone like you, but also all of the amazing nuggets and inspiration that you shared with us. Thank you. My pleasure. And thank you again. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Beyond Barriers podcast. There are thousands of podcasts out there, and we are so grateful that you've chosen to listen to ours. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and tell a friend, or share what you've learned on LinkedIn and tag us. We love hearing from our audience. Visit us at gobeyondbarriers.com, where you can subscribe and find show notes, links, and the best way to connect with our guests.